Hi everyone and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance. My name is Devraga and I'm your host and in this episode we will discuss the concept of downside risk. What is it? What are some of the strategies to protect against it? You know, a lot of people go about investing the wrong way in my humble opinion. The number one question isn't, how do I make more money? The number one question is, how do I protect myself from losing money? Let's get started. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now to the main topic, what is downside risk? Now, this basically is a metric which can be used to assess the risk of financial losses when it comes to your investments. But the saying can be applied to pretty much any activity which you wish to embark on, including investments. For example, if you were to jump out of a plane and do a parachute glide or whatever it is, you can ask yourself, what's your downside risk? Now, the losses need not be down to zero, particularly when it comes to money and finances. It can be below the level of purchase price of a given asset or class of asset. Some people associate downside risk as worst case scenario. The important measure here is that it's not really compared to the contrary phenomenon. That is, what is the upside phenomenon? Historically, Roy in the 1950s first modelled this theory because it assumed the first thing an investor should do is minimise their risk. The other term for this approach is called safety first. When you think about it, especially in healthcare, we have some similar things when it comes to the care of a patient. What is the number one goal of any healthcare worker and patient relationship? Do no harm and make sure you don't make the patient worse. You've got to provide safe and effective clinical care. That's the gold standard. That's the intention when it comes to healthcare. It's often not about the diagnosis or the investigation or even the treatment. At its core, downside risk is a statistical measure and that's about it. The other thing is downside risk cannot be eliminated unless and only if you don't invest your money. But even then, you have the base risk, which is inflationary risk. And we've all learned about inflation in 2022 and most of 2023. So what are the essential components of downside risk? Number one is time horizon. When analysis of any upside or downside potential risk is done, we need to take into account the time horizon of the investment you're considering. For example, if you look at the stock market, let's say S&P 500 and analyse over 30 or 40 year period, what is the risk of losing your money? The risk is very, very close to zero, but not zero. Imagine asking the same question, but not installing a time frame. Then it's very difficult to assess the downside risk. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. 
Amy is a receptionist and just starting out in her career. Her dream job is to run a company which serves as a virtual assistant service to healthcare professionals. Amy is pondering investing money into the stock market as well. Her preferred market is the Sensex, which is the Indian stock market. She looks at this chart and notices a general uptrend. Now, if she wants to assess her downside risk of losing money in the Indian stock market, then this would be a very broad question. But if the question was she wants to hone in and say, what is my risk that I invested in the last 40 years in the Indian stock market? In 1983, for example, you started, then it's negligible because it started at 561 points in 1983. And at the time of recording this podcast, it's around 65,995 points. That's a 12,000% return on our money. It's quite incredible. Number two is confidence interval. Remembering downside risk is a measure. It's a statistical parameter. A confidence interval needs to be part of the calculation process. A confidence interval, and I hate stats by the way, basically is another way of saying margin of error or degree of uncertainty associated with a specific statistical metric. So when people say 95% confidence interval, it means there's a 5% chance of uncertainty or error. Companies, analyses and stocks and measuring their downside risk, need to come up with their confidence interval, which is usually around 90 to 95% anyway. So how do you measure it? Measuring downside risk is beyond the scope of this podcast. Maybe if you want to Google some links, um, I'll try and drum some up in the show notes for those geeky people. You can use various parameters to measure it, such as historical simulation, variance, covariance methods, and I'm already falling asleep. But here's the fundamental concept. When choosing an investment, you need to choose something which has limited downside risk and a significant, hopefully limitless, upside potential. If you can crack this code, you've cracked the whole investment game to your advantage. Now, downside risk can be related to individual stocks, which is a security analyst goes through their statistical analysis, or an economist going through all of the factors which may cause downside in the economy, such as unemployment rates, inflation, gross domestic product, etc., So what's the difference between downside risk versus downside by itself? Now, for the purposes of this episode, you can use these terms interchangeably, and there's very little difference. It's just that you may seem these terms used in various contexts when you learn more about it whilst reading or listening around it. And how do you protect yourself against downside risk? Now, I've discussed the concept of hedging in episode 240, where I discuss various strategies. The strategies I will discuss in this segment is primarily related to investments, particularly when it comes to portfolio management and stock market investing. Number one is options trading, such as a put option. I discuss specifically this in episode 56. A put option is where you can potentially protect your downside. Basically, when you buy a put option contract, say on an underlying security, you're not really buying the underlying security, you're just buying an insurance policy against the price drop. You may hold the underlying security anyway, but that's slightly a different issue. You select a predetermined price to sell at it, and if only in the event the underlying value of the security falls. And usually, put options of an expiration date, a strike price, and that's a predetermined price. And the easiest way to explain this is by using an example. Let's use an example to highlight put options. Amy is a sophisticated investor. She wants to protect herself against losses. The current price of company ABC stock is $100. 
Let's say she owns 100 shares of this company. The total value is $10,000. Let's say to protect herself, she buys put options for those 100 shares at a value of $85 per share. She's a bit worried the stock market is going to plummet in the next three months due to global uncertainty. The strike price is $85. To protect herself and buy this put option, she has to pay a premium, like an insurance premium. And let's say that premium is a dollar per share. So she has to pay $100 in premium for the three-month period. Let's say at month two, there is indeed a share market correction and company ABC stock plummets to $70. This means the put option is in the money. Here are the options for Amy. She can exercise her put option and sell her stock at $85, which is the strike price, even though the current market value is $70. Or she can sell the put option contract if anyone wants to buy it. If she exercised her option, then it means she sells her stock portfolio for $8,500 and her cost price is $10,000 and she only loses around $1,500 And this is how she protects her downside risk. Now, if she just sells her put option, then essentially she pockets the difference of $70, which is the current value of the company ABC stock and a strike price of $85. So it's a $15 per share advantage. Of course, less any premium, she's paid for the privilege and that amounts to $1,500 minus $100. So a $1,400 profit. This is what options trading is all about, and we see ads about this all the time on YouTube and TV about this particular concept. Number two is stop loss orders. That's another way to protect your downside risk. This is when you use a broker to buy a security, and you put in a price for the stock. And if the price goes below that, it automatically sells the stock. This way, you cut your losses without having to ride the stock down to zero. It also has an advantage to lock in your profits and crystallize them. There is also something called a stop limit order, which is slightly different. A stop loss order will make a stock sell at a market value if it reaches below a certain price, where a stop limit order will only get executed at a specific price and won't sell at market value. That is a subtle difference. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. In business hours, Let's say Amy is a sophisticated investor who buys 100 shares of company ABC stock. Each share is bought at $100. She sets a stop-loss order at $90. The stock declines over the next one week to below $90. Her stop-loss order is triggered and is automatically sold at $89.95. Amy has protected her losses and executed the trade automatically. Suppose this change in price happens during after-hours. Let's say the same situation happens after close of trading. It comes out in the news company ABC is in financial trouble and there's been some dubious management of his balance sheet. Stock opens the next day and now is at $70 and Amy's stop loss will get triggered and now at market value of $70 as a price change has happened after hours. She still sells the stock automatically, but at $70 and not at $89.95. Although the stop-loss order is triggered, it didn't trigger as originally intended. Amy still protects her losses and walks away from a major loss. I hope that clarifies the concept of stop-loss orders and stop-limit orders. Number three is diversification. I discussed this concept littered throughout my channel. This is Quite simply, the whole point of investing is to make sure you diversify your asset pool, which means diluting your risk and volatility, and hopefully this translates to lesser risk of losing your money. 
Ideally, when you diversify the assets, which are negatively correlated, this hedges your risk and mitigates it as much as possible. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a sophisticated investor. The year is 2020, and Amy has a well-diversified portfolio comprising of index funds which track the S&P 500. Unfortunately, in the short term, Amy has made some paper losses, but over the last few months has noticed something very interesting. The S&P 500 has 500 top companies, which comprises of some diverse sectors, including oil, gas, utilities, tech stocks, healthcare, and travel stocks. Due to COVID risk back in 2020, travel and oil stocks have gone down because of lockdowns and people couldn't go anywhere. But her tech stocks have gone up since online shopping has boomed. So even though her portfolio is down a bit, it's not as down as someone who might have just invested in individual stocks, which were in sectors severely impacted by COVID. So therefore, she's used diversification as a hedging strategy to protect her downside risk. Number four is learn about volatility. Now, I talk about risk and volatility way back in episode 48. They're very two different concepts that you need to understand. I've touched on the efficient frontier before in many episodes. Basically, as an investor, you should get the optimal returns for a given level of risk. And otherwise, the investor is taking on that risk inefficiently. Learning about risk and volatility is really important. So investors may want to reduce their exposure to equities and move some of their investments to cash and bonds. This reduces overall volatility and protects their downside risk. Classically, for the retail investor, we tend to do this as we get older. So it protects our risks of losing our investment. Number five is targeted market exposure. This is just another way of saying factor investing, which I've discussed before and way back in episode 41. You may want to maintain exposure to equity markets, but at the same time, try and mitigate your risks. You look at various factors and segments of the market and pick out a segment which has lower volatility. Sectors like financials, like major banks or utility companies, often has less sensitive to market fluctuations. This is largely because people still need banks and still need to use utilities. So there are a lot of fund managers which take the smart beta approach to investing, which is a mix of active versus passive investing. Although these funds are not as cheap as passively managed ETFs, they are still cheaper than actively managed funds. Now, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue with this topic of downside risk. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, welcome back. We have to consider what are some of the pros of downside risk. If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. This is a famous saying which gets thrown around a lot. And using downside risk protection strategies enables you to plan for situations which may not go to plan. We all know of companies which existed maybe 30, 40 years ago which no longer exist. Probably the most famous example in the tech industry is Yahoo, absolutely dominated the internet search market in the 1990s. And along came Google in the 2000s and absolutely crushed them. If people invested in Yahoo in the 1990s and didn't risk mitigate, they would have and probably did lose a lot of money. Now, what about the cons of downside risk? Downside risk calculations always use a model. Like anything in life, models work 99 times out of 100 based on various scenarios. But things like GFC or COVID or the tech bubble happen all the time, and you can't model for such extreme market events. So downside risk calculations can lead you astray and not always correct in their predictions. So there is a tendency for it to give you a false sense of security. What about downside risk in personal finance? I alluded to this in the introduction to this episode. People ask me a lot of questions, and the most common question I get asked is, how do I make more money? Or what investments should do? My response is, not a financial advisor, and I think you're looking at it the wrong way. My life now is all about assessing risk. Risk assessment is ingrained in my life. Everything I do, I always risk assess the situation and ask myself, what is my downside risk? when doing this activity. This can be money-related or anything situational-related. Another way of asking the same question is, is it worth it? What can I lose as a result of embarking on this activity or investment? Think about it like this. You're on holiday and an opportunity comes up to do an activity which has an inherent risk associated with it. You're worth about $10 million, have a family, have kids. Life is pretty sweet. You really need to assess your risk in doing that activity and need to do it very, very quickly. Is it really important that you do that activity? Is it that much enjoyable? And if so, what are the risks and what are the benefits? We hear about so many people overseas getting stuck in untoward situations and it makes you wonder, did they assess the risk of going to do that activity? An example of people riding scooters, for example, overseas, because it's cheaper when compared to hiring a taxi and a driver. The risk of a scooter accident and permanent disability is a huge risk, in my opinion, and something we all need to consider when travelling. So assessing your downside risk can be associated with your personal finances or just your personal life. Now, here are some of the ways you can protect your downside risk when it comes to your personal finance. Number one, health and well-being. You only get one body and one mind in your life. Use it effectively, efficiently, and protect it as much as possible. Number two, spending less than you earn. You can't go bankrupt if you don't have any debt, so manage your budget well. Number three is personal insurance. You don't need insurance until you do. Not having life, income, 
trauma or TPD is a huge risk. Is it worth taking the risk for a few thousand bucks a year? Number four is borrowing less than what you can afford. Be conservative when banks or credit companies offer you money. When you borrow money, there is usually one guaranteed winner and it's not you. Number five is taking financial risks. My whole life now is about assessing my downside risk. Once you achieve a level of wealth, your number one goal should be how do you protect it? Don't do anything stupid. I was speaking to a doctor recently, no matter what they did or didn't do, at a minimum, they will reach a net worth status of $7.5 million. So my question is, is it worth taking the risk for another $5 million or so? And how much risk is worth taking for that extra $5 mil? Number six is having liquidity and cash in your portfolio. Cash is sometimes king. Yeah, there's inflation, blah, blah, blah. It's hard to go bankrupt if you have cash in the bank. Cash flow and liquidity are two very different concepts that I've discussed in previous episodes, if you're interested. Number seven is sick leave. No one ever talks about this. Protect your sick leave. That is an additional level of personal insurance. If in the private sector or work for yourself, make sure you plan for it and account for it. This is a major problem in the private medical sector where doctors don't get any entitlements. They are to fend for themselves, which is why going to private doctors can be very expensive because all of their costs has to be factored in. No sick leave, no superannuation, no annual leave, no carer's leave. And the last one is superannuation. This has personal insurance as well. Maximizing super is generally a good strategy for most people. So learn about it, utilize it, and execute it. And have a listen to my three-part super series, which goes in depth about the concepts and principles which everyone should know. Now that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms, that's even better. And please leave a positive review. When you leave positive reviews, that means it points more people to this channel, which means it improves the financial literacy of everyone. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access, so please keep them coming. My name's Dev Riker, and this is Dev Riker Personal Finance for the first time in 2024. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.